This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ken's Toronto Book Hall. Rob Heinso. And collaborative world building. This week's episode is brought to you by the Spark role-playing game by Genesis of Legend Publishing. A game of building worlds and challenging your beliefs within them. So, Ken, your voice is strangely familiar to me, given that I sent you off to the Billy Bishop Airport in Toronto uh, just yesterday morning, and you were here in Toronto for uh, Fan Expo Canada, and we had a delightful time. This is a big media convention that it, I think got around 30,000 people this year at fills the Metro Toronto Convention Center now. And when it first started to add a gaming track, maybe seven, five, six years ago, whatever it was, it was often sort of a a sad affair uh, when, for example, there was one time when I trucked down there after Gen Con to do a panel and there were as many audience members as there were panelists. But now it's gotten so crazy and the audiences are so large, the any given seminar is likely to have a much bigger turnout than any given Gen Con seminar. Although, of course, that's because it's only one of two gaming seminars running at any time. But it's still a chance to get in front of a huge audience in this uh, growing, uh, some might say, stressfully large event. And they've uh, started flying in out-of-town guests, and they flew you in this time. Yes, I was uh, lucky enough to get invited up to fly out to basically th- what this is for people who are familiar with uh, things like the Wizard World chain of comic, comic conventions or C2E2 or other sort of shows run by Reed, like New York Comic Con. It's sort of a media show with a strong sort of a comic book spine to it and then a lot of other nerd things uh, appended off. And as Robin intimates, the gaming thing appended off has been growing stronger, not just at Toronto, but also at the Chicago Wizard World, where I did some show uh, some panels earlier and at C2E2, where Matt Forbeck and Will Heinmarch and I usually do some panels. So uh, I think that the gaming uh, lobe of the Nerdosphere is growing, as it should, and it grew enough that they were able to spring for an American for this one, so I was happy to come up and be part of it. Uh, We recorded a live episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and we'll be dropping that a little later on. That'll be a cover episode for when I'm off at the film festival. And... uh, the other reason that I have to go to this thing, I feel obliged, is that actually the guy who runs the gaming track, Justin Maharab, is a regular player in my gaming group, and he flashes his his puppy dog eyes at me, and uh, I, you know, I always have to say yes, and he keeps upping the ante to get me down there. And this year he brought you out, so how could I possibly say no? We had a bit of a recording fear at the beginning that we wouldn't <laughs> be able to get the recording going, so he was briefly demoted from regional podcaster to local podcaster. And at one point, for some other infraction, I think we almost demoted him to... Area man. Area man. Yeah. Uh, but finally, uh, he did such a great job running it that I think we've uh, remoted him back to regional podcaster. He has, he has once again attained his storied rank. So here's to you, Justin Muharab, for setting that up and letting me come out to Toronto and get to see not just the uh, the, the Canadian version of Nerd, but also to see the Canadian version of King Nerd, namely Robin, and uh, talk to uh, his lovely wife, Valerie, and hang out in Toronto's 
uh, many fine donut establishments and fooditoriums and uh, liquor stores. So good for Toronto. Right. Before we move on to a more detailed description of our donuts, uh, I would also just like to say that some of the audiences were really great, not only in terms of their size, but we did a, a GM a master class panel and the demographic of these 120, 150 people was everything from the usual people who stand up and say, gaming is an aging hobby to teenage, young teenage girls. There is a boy under 10 who asked us, or sort of around 10 or 11 or something like that, who asked us how to create a boss monster. And the range of people in that audience was really quite heartening and I think goes to the increasing spread of the gamer meme through the general population. And this is part of, I think, the sort of cross-pollination over into the, the broader sort of comic sphere, because obviously with uh, the rise of Vertigo, you got a much larger female audience in comics, and you're against what seems to be storied uh, attempts by DC and Marvel to drive them back away. You continue <laughs> to see um, uh, female comics fans join in. you got, of course, the anime uh, audience, which was probably, uh, in this country at least, primarily female even from the beginning, and is uh, remains pr uh, much female. And the cosplay movement obviously attracts uh, women. And so you have a, a number of sort of majority female segments of the nerd community that, you would, that we have not seen uh, when I was growing up, certainly in the ancient times, when all we had were dog-eared copies of amazing stories to pass around. But the female component at a big show, especially a media show like Fan Expo or like C2E2, is it's both refreshing and I think it, it bodes well for role-playing as those fans <laughs> think not at all unreasonably that perhaps they might like to come over and try this other neat thing that nerds do. Uh, and that's helped especially at this show by the fact that everything else closes at 7, but the gaming hall goes on and on and on. Yes. So if you're not yet nerded out at 7 p.m., you can just head on over and play Pathfinder or Settlers of Catan or whatever else. We also took part in a state of the industry panel, which is a staple topic. And I think this was uh, the most positive, upbeat state of the industry panel I have uh, ever participated in. You know, it, for our purposes, I figured it was just because you and myself and Eric and I guess Jonathan had also been at Gen Con, but we'd all come back from Gen Con. And Gen Con was so great. Right. And that would be Eric Lang and Jonathan Lavallee. Yeah. Um, it was so great and so positive and so, you know, it, it, it grew apparently 12% over last year. So there is certainly what I think Eric called the Pokemon effect kicking in, where the people the, who are now beginning to be old enough to come to Gen Con and spend money were the first kids who grew up playing Pokemon and therefore have known about hit points and monster types and levels from, you know, birth, from, you know, A to Z and from... Uh, and, and from, you know, with, with Grover and, and all the other things that they learned, they also learned about Pikachu. So Enslaving monsters and getting them to work for you is their mother's milk. Exactly. So I think that uh, we, are, we are sitting at the sort of cusp of a potential demographic uh, bulge at the same time that we're beginning to climb up the other side of the crevasse of uh, the publishing business that we fell into uh, long about the D20 bust. And as crowdfunding and other things begin to sort of bolster the possibility to make a role-playing game model work in the 21st century. I think we're seeing more people, again, not surprisingly, get into role-playing.
Now, this is not your first time in Toronto, and this time I resolved to make sure never to take you to a boring restaurant, because I think the last time you were here uh, a while back, there were some places that we wound up in just because we were hungry and they were there. So uh, I give you your choice of the various uh, places within walking distance of my place, and the first one you chose was a Nicaraguan restaurant called La Bella Managua. Yes, because I do not know off the top of my head where there is a Nicaraguan restaurant in Chicago, and I certainly have not had Nicaraguan food before, so I figured it would be worth a uh, worth a shot to come and see how how that regional cuisine worked out, and it worked out pretty darn well, as it turned out. The Nicaraguan tacos, I think, for me at least, were the big revelation. Uh, their ceviche was pretty much like everyone's ceviche, um, and the deep-fried pork cracklings with yucca, while interesting were not technically a meal. I think they would have been better as an appetizer, but those tacos were phenomenal. Yeah, I had the the same entree that you did, except that they were not pork cracklins, but actual pieces of pork, and that was much more meal-like. It, it was. So the distinguishing feature of the tacos is that they are deep-fried, so there's a lot of deep-frying in this cuisine, along with salady, cabbage things mm-hmm. you would not necessarily expect. So uh, in a way, it's, I guess Nicaragua is the Scotland of Central America. I, I think that there is... There is uh, much to be said about that, possibly down to the endemic clan warfare and beautiful (laughs) lakes. (laughs) I think I just heard our episode title. Now, you can't call it early. Uh, no, that's that's right. Who knows what, what amazing witticism we may yet unfurl. Let's see, what else did we uh, check out? Well, the aforementioned donuts, there's a place called uh, Jelly Modern Donuts. Uh, frighteningly close to my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do some really fabulous gourmet-style donuts that uh, I, for one, ate too many of. Yes, I am actually kind of amazed that you've maintained your svelte. Uh, for those of you who have not seen Robin, and for those who did not know Robin back in the in Robin Classic era, Robin was more game designer <laughs> shaped at one time, and uh, through what has what has got to be the sort of application of prime Canadian principles, has um, uh, the Canadian Air Force exercises perhaps has got himself indeed yes a, a worthwhile initiative was launched and has got himself down to you know actual human uh, sl- uh, svelte and human slender. <laughs> And so uh, the fact that the he's got that donut place uh, that close to his house, I would be literally spherical if Jelly opened up uh, three blocks or four blocks from my house. We had a, like a Spumoni one. There was a peanut butter uh, chocolate one. There was there a was... maple bacon one that uh, had me considering dual citizenship. It was so good. I have had the maple bacon one on previous occasions. And indeed, yes, it is one of the most seductive things in Toronto, along with its all-new dancing and drinking establishments. And so uh, we went on from there to a French West Indies place, a little hole in the wall in beautiful Kensington Market. And what did you learn about French West Indies cuisine at Conti Libre? I don't know that I learned anything specific about or general about French West Indian cuisine. I learned a specific, which is that the Bokeet sandwiches are terrific. And like the Bami sandwiches in Vietnamese cuisine, they are down to the bread quality, and that the bread quality and the way that the bread is prepared sort of creates the expectation for the rest of it. And Vietnamese sandwiches have a, a sort of a specialized uh, vinegar pickling type uh, sauce on them or dressing on them. Similarly, the Bokit had a sauce that I did not inquire into closely. I got the medium, which I think was the right way to go, but it had a lot of very deep and interesting flavors. I'm willing to bet that there was allspice in there somewhere, but it was not hot and unpleasant like jerk, uh, which is not that unpleasant, but it was not hot like jerk. It was a different sort of a West Indian uh, spice palette. And on my Bokeet, I had codfish and avocado and egg, which I don't know if that's a traditional Martinican 
combo or just something that they could get free of in Canada, and so that's what they put in the bokeep. But I think it's down to the bread and the sauce. Right, right. and the bread is really interesting because it's sort of it's kind of fried, pan fried to order, mm -hmm. and uh, the secret ingredient in it that makes it so interesting, in addition to the uh, you know the frying part, is there's a bit of bicarbonate in it, so there's yeah. a little bit of soda it, it's quality, sort of so. floaty and and, um, uh, and wonderful uh, bread. So the closest analog I would say would be an arepa, but if you have a choice between eating an arepa and a bokeh, stagger them out and eat both. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Why, why, why impose false choices on yourself? That's what I ask. But it is more evidence for my theory that if you want your cuisine to sort of go up to the next level, try and arrange to be occupied by France for a hundred years or so. Um, I don't recommend it, obviously, on any other grounds, but certainly, you know, Vietnam, Senegal, Morocco, New Orleans, and now uh, the French West Indies are beginning to put together, as we call it, a suggestive pattern. And then, of course, uh, we went all out on the Canadiana and took you to uh, Smoke's Poutine, which oh, is Toronto's... <laughs> so good. So good. Yes, yes the, w w once you reduce to inarticulate uh, sounds of pleasure, that's uh, that's highly reviewed. So this is basically, you know, it's post-club food in, in Toronto, and I'm sure the Montreal's, Montrealers among you will... Uh, Turn up your nose at the lack of authenticity here. Ken doubled his Montrealness in Toronto with some Montreal smoked meat, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a deli meat that was shaved and put on top. But this was similar a, to corned beef, I think, but not uh, quite like it's. It's a relative of corned beef, and I should do more research to find out exactly how it differs from uh, from your corned beef. Um, and we had a tasting flight of Canadian craft beers. Uh, of which your favorite was? The Mill Street Stock Ale. I am a uh, mid-continent dweller, and therefore I like my beers to be in the lager pilsner side of the equation, not all the way over down into your box and stouts, uh, which I uh, begin to consider sort of like a breakfast food or a side salad rather than an actual beverage. So I am uh, I'm quite fond of lagers and pilsners and uh, sort of bitters, things that are on that end of the scale. And I thought that the Mill Street Stock Ale uh, combined... A good, strong, remarkable flavor with lightness and crispness in a way that not a lot of beer does, and certainly not a lot of uh, lager beer does. So good for it. And on a hot day when your Mill Street stock ale is very, very cold, uh, there are seldom better pleasures. Um, and then we went to sort of a, a place that I thought was uh, upscale Italian and turned up to be more kind of haute cuisine. Mm -hmm. It was... Uh, Delicious, but maybe a little too uh, rich for me after all of that uh, eating. Yes, Robin was trying to find something less rich, and I think that that was not available there. They only had more rich. But the um, uh, grilled, they had grilled lobster, which is what I had, which was perfectly good. But I got to tell you, Canada really brought it on the desserts this trip for me. The fresh blueberry creme brulee, which was made from scratch there at the restaurant, may be the best creme brulee I've ever eaten. And I think that the fresh blueberries do the lion's share of the work, but the rest of the process certainly brought it along as well. It was a it was a combined arms effort there from the Frank's eatery or Frank's location, Frank's place. Frank's kitchen. Frank's kitchen. I knew it was something seemingly unpretentious. But yeah, it was uh it was it was a crazy good creme brulee. Obviously the grilled lobster tasted like grilled lobster, so you know what that's like. Our skill at desserts is certainly a testament mm -hmm. to our sweet natures. Uh it has been said that we have maple syrup in our veins, and uh, that's certainly true when it comes to our sweet tooth. But 
But also among the paneling and the eating, uh, something really weird happened. I kind of thought that all of the used bookstores in my neighborhood had closed, but there was a mysterious mist and a time vortex, and suddenly I realized that, in fact, there are all kinds of great used bookstores within walking distance of my apartment. And, and I don't know what happened, Ken, but we somehow you wound up in a number of them. Yes, there was some sort of uh, brief discussion during which I explained that I'm not allowed to go into used bookstores unsupervised because, of course, my lovely wife wishes to keep, you know, any spare capacity in our home and bank account. And then we would be in a used bookstore as if some sort of insidious Canadian elf had uh, appeared at my elbow and said, just this once, Ken, it's a used bookstore. What can it possibly hurt? Well, that's supervision in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I suppose that that's really down to Sheila is having failed to specify what sort of supervision I should have. Exactly. Um, and so you uh, wound up with uh, quite the accumulated haul over uh, several visits, uh, starting with a couple of novels by Julian Simons, The Players and the Game and The Name of Annabelle Lee. What can you tell us, uh, first of all, about Julian Simons in general and why those particular slim fictional volumes jumped into your hand? Um, Julian Simons, or Simmons, I suppose is how he would pronounce it, but since he's a Trotskyite, I don't care how he pronounces it. <laughs> Julian Simons uh, began as sort of a poet and bright young thing in Britain, but fell very hard for crime novels and detective novels and wrote a fairly good sort of summary of the state of the art called Bloody Murder in 1972, which is, I think, where I ran across him. And then he was also, I, I want to say he might have been Aleister Crowley's executor. He was somehow connected to the Crowley estate and wound up writing Crowley's sort of approved biography very early on in uh, the, the sort of the post-Crowley history. And so that was another place I ran into him. And as you know, when I run into someone twice in two unrelated fields, I begin to sort of chase them down. And it turned out he'd written, you know, maybe 30 uh, mystery novels, some of which I've read, and these two of which I bought. Uh, the players in the game promised me uh, Count Dracula and Body, Bonnie Parker, which I thought was a great opener, but it turns out it's a novel about a pair of serial killers who think they are Count Dracula and Bonnie Parker. I, I can see why you would elide that on the back cover yes, copy. Yes, not, not quite as fun, but he also, uh, the, the name of Annabelle Lee is his Edgar Allan Poe novel, and pretty much every B-ranking mystery novelist has written an Edgar Allan Poe novel. I think you could probably put together a fairly good anthology of Edgar Allan Poe stories by not Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, with the rats in the walls by H.P. Lovecraft obviously having pride of place. But this is uh, Julian Simmons's Edgar Allan Poe novel, and I look forward to it because as a historian of the detective fiction and as a sort of connoisseur of the history of crime, I think his approach to Poe is going to mirror my own in that it is going to look at symbols and tropes less than sort of, oh, wow, this guy is going to go drink himself to death and uh, shout a lot of entertaining stuff, which a lot of people do, it turns out, not just Poe. Now, if we're going to switch to talking about another writer whose lifestyle, I think, contrasts strongly with Poe's, that would be In Memory Yet Green, the autobiography of Isaac Asimov, 1920 to 1954. And I think I remember reading this as a, uh, a young sprout. What led you to uh, pick up Asimov's first chunk of autobio? The thing that led me to pick it up is the strong suspicion, which I have not yet confirmed, that I picked up the second volume of his autobiography for free at a uh, the estate. It was, it's not the estate. It was There's a professor of the history of science fiction who is a friend of a friend, and he was moving and couldn't move all of his books. And Word went out that there was a whole shelf full of science fiction books that needed a new home, and as a caring, generous soul, I 
went to help him out, and I'm pretty sure I got Volume 2 of the autobiography there. So this was sort of a gamble that I have Volume 2 of Asimov's autobiography somewhere in my uh, in my bookshelves. But as of yet, it has been such a uh, whirlwind coming back from Toronto and prepping to go to Dragon Con that I have not yet gone and checked that out. Now, I remember taking inspiration from that just in terms of his prodigious work ethic and the amount of stuff that he managed to turn out. And of course, that's sort of the, the volume one is the bit where the author gives you his early life and mm-hmm. takes you to the point where he starts his career. It's always more difficult to write an interesting book about yourself when you're at the part of your life where it's like, then I sat down at the typewriter and another nine months later, I had this book. And three months later, I had this book. And then I went to this convention. Um, so what sort of uh, inspiration or interest or do you draw from Asimov as a figure? Well, one of the things that I like about Asimov and one of the things I think that I sort of picked up from Asimov is uh, to uh, quote Robert Heinlein, ironically, specialization is for insects. Asimov not only wrote terrific science fiction, he also wrote very good popular history books. He wrote tremendous popular science books. He wrote books about the Bible and about Shakespeare and about all kinds of other things. And when I wind up writing things in, you know, your sort of suppressed transmission vein or in, or almost in any game book, often I'm working from a base of knowledge that Isaac Asimov laid down for me when I was 12, 13, 14, a young sprout, as you put it. And so looking at Asimov's sort of not just his uh, professional direction, but his sort of intellectual direction, his sort of refusal to be bored or bogged down by anything. I think that's a great model for everyone. There's way more cool stuff than I have time for now. And I think anyone who's sitting there saying, well, I've, I've, I've got no other choice than to watch reality television is someone who is just not paying attention and is certainly not living an Asimov-esque life. So another alternate title for this might be Letters to a Young Polymath. Yes, that or it's, or perhaps letters from a young polymath, as well. <laughs> um, so next we come to something that definitely falls within your remit as the author of Knight's Black Agents, and that's Jackal: The Complete Story of the Legendary Terrorist Carlos the Jackal by John Fallane. Uh, I can't imagine this is your first Carlos the Jackal book in your collection. No, I have um, a book about sort of the hunt for the jackal that was done. Uh, sort of kind of at the time, I think in the late 80s or early 90s when the Jackal was last sort of big. And I have another couple of books that sort of get into the, the, the Jackal as a chapter in various sort of terrorist histories. This, I think, is the first one that I have that was written after he was caught with, with sort of the data that was available, um, if not right after the Soviets fell, at least was close enough that you could start demonstrating the provable involvement of the KGB in the Jackal's career, which was just something that way back in the day was was something people would say and then would get denied, despite the fact, of course, that you know his his name his first name was Illich, so obviously his he grew up ideologically sympathetic to the KGB. Right, and and also the, the role that the KGB played in supporting the r- radical Palestinian terrorists of that period as mm-hmm. well. That they, uh, you know, turn out in retrospect had been much more of an effort at Western destabilization than anything that did the Palestinian people any favors. Well, it's certainly no um, uh, no shortage of domestic Palestinian radicals that have also done the Palestinian people no favors. But yes, in this particular case, they turned out to be a particularly ill-used set of Moscow puppets. And Carlos was a more colorful, though I guess less in the final analysis damaging uh, part of that uh, of that career. But he is sort of a prototypical 
a spy movie villain um, or anti-hero, depending on how you watch The Day of the Jackal. And it, it, as a figure, it's, it's a terrific uh, resource to have that sort of biography. How does a guy who, in theory, is a freelance badass go around doing freelance badassery, in his case, for... Gaddafi and the communists as opposed to four vampires, but it's the same basic theory. And uh, I would also recommend at this point the Olivier Assayas uh, movie, Carlos, and uh, make sure that you get the Criterion version that has the full, I think, four hour or so version. And it's a, a really great evocation of the 70s that captures why people found him exciting, why they sort of thought of him as a, uh, you know, a modern day sort of pretty boy Floyd figure and not uh, just as a terrorist without actually falling for that glamour itself. Carlos, of course, begins as the bad guy in one of the uh, original Bourne novels, and then he was also in, of course, the classic uh, Day of the Jackal by uh, Frederick Forsyth, which is just like all of Forsyth's top stuff untouchably good and turned into a couple of uh, really good movies. He, he might hold the record for people who were fictionalized while he was still at large. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe him and Davy Crockett can fight it out for who has the most uh, glamorous fi fictional legend attached to them while they're still, in theory, around to dispute it. And now a uh, little bit of a Coles to Newcastle uh, in Toronto. You found a book about Chicago crime, and that was The Almighty Black Pea Stone Nation, The Rise Fall and Resurgence of an American Gang by Natalie Moore and Lance Williams. We've talked about this gang a little bit in a previous segment about Chicago gangland, but here you have a new reference source on it. Yeah, and these guys were the were sort of my local gang. I mean, they were in the Woodlawn neighborhood, which was the next neighborhood over from Hyde Park. And, you know, the Blackstone Rangers sort of turf extends pretty much right up until the point the University of Chicago's turf begins. And so there's uh, sort of a home, not just a hometown, but a home neighborhood connection to them. And then they, of course, much like Carlos the Jackal, uh, did a lot of good work for uh, Muammar Gaddafi. So that's another lovely connection there. Well, what did they do for Gaddafi? They sort of ran guns and were planning to be his terrorists in America, uh, as opposed to trying to sneak Libyans into the United States. He figured if he just found a radical Islamic, uh, radical Muslim uh, domestic gang, he could supply them with heavy weapons, and then they could carry out terrorist activities. And that was their um, attempt to do that. Sadly, um, even in 1987, the federal government was keeping track of gang leaders who flew to Libya. And so he, um, uh, he wound up being you know, jailed, among other things, for that. And that, that deal turns out to have been one of the big things that crippled uh, the Blackstone Rangers, because it suddenly wasn't just about the city of Chicago, which might have been willing to take payoffs and make payoffs as they traditionally have for gangs since the 60s, well, really since the 20s. But the uh, the, fe the federal involvement is what sort of nailed them in terms of national law enforcement attention. If they'd gotten away with that and made something happen, it would have been a really weird sort of unprecedented transition to go from urban crime gang to uh, ideological terrorists. And, and during the Iraq war, there were people who were seeing Blackstone Ranger and one of their sort of offshoot El Rukin gang signs painted on Baghdad walls, and the great worry was that various El Rukans or Blackstone Rangers who were in the military would come back and use their powerful knowledge of counterinsurgency against Chicago, which of course turned out to be nonsense, but it was a way to um, uh, 
uh, express uh, worry about the Iraq war without actually worrying about the Iraq war for Chicago journalists. Yeah, I think that was the plot of the week on at least every police procedural is uh, gang involvement in the military and blowback afterwards. Mm -hmm. But like uh, so many other worries, it made better fiction than reality. Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah. I, as, as always, um, uh, one suspects that if any <laughs> half-decent dungeon master had been given the kind of access to money and talent that Qaddafi had, they could have done a lot more damage. So we should be glad that Qaddafi wasn't a gamer. Moving back in time to some older criminals, we go to Pirates of Barbary, Corsairs, Conquests, and Captivity in the 17th century Mediterranean by Adrian Tinniswood. And this one sort of backstops a sort of a weird little hole in my piracy collection. I have a ton of books on Caribbean piracy. I have a decent number of books on pirates in other oceans. The South uh, China Sea is sort of the other lobe of it. But aside from a fairly good shelf about the Barbary Wars in American history that ended the Barbary piracy uh, in 1812 to 1815 thereabouts, I don't actually have any good books on the Barbary pirates except for uh, Peter Lamborn Wilson's uh, book, Pirate Utopias, which uh, has the advantage of having a lot of details about various piratical utopias, including the Sali uh, in Morocco, but has the disadvantage of being written by someone who is trying to argue that anarchism is a uh, not just a functional way to run society, but one with uh, historical uh, support and tied in with a number of his other sort of mystical ideas about human organization. So while it's a good book, it is not a particularly good history, but Pirates of Barbary here looks like it is quite a good history and will hopefully backstop me on, on uh, the Mediterranean uh, pirates and their activities. Well, surely Sheila wouldn't want you to have a hole in your Barbary pirate shelf. No, I, I'm, that's the sort of thing that comes under prior art, that if I've got a pirate collection... The fact that I'm adding to the pirate collection, that's just maintenance, really. That's not addition. Right. And, and since you have a, you know, a relatively small number of topics on which you represent it on your bookshelf, that's surely not a problem. Now, I'm now uh, up to the one where I heard a gasp of delight in the used bookstore called She Said Boom when your eyes alighted on Gladio, NATO's dagger at the heart of Europe, the Pentagon, Nazi, Mafia, Terror Access by Richard Cottrell. And before we move on to the content of this, this is the one where you demonstrated a principle on finding quality craziness by looking at the design of the back cover. Yes, the uh, secret to people who write crazy books, or not the secret, but a... An important signifier, shall we say. An important signifier, spur. <laughs> the, 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 the condition presents as um, refusal to allow any inch of back cover space to go uncovered by text. There are so many vital pieces of information in your average book of crazy that they, they cannot be contained merely within the pages. The author, who is usually the person who controls the back cover text, uh, just simply cannot uh, summarize it in a few simple beat points, but has to sort of uh, vomit the, uh, the cell text all over the back cover. And when you run across a book, as Gladio has with what looks like probably less than a quarter inch of boundary around the back cover text. You are looking at something that even when you realize that it is from progressive press with the P R E S S in progressive capitalized, you realize you are dealing with a special book indeed. Well, margins are the work of the Bilderberger group. Yes, they were, they were introduced by the Thurn and Texas in order to uh, control Lutheranism. 
It's well known. Uh, so aside from this outward sign of its craziness, what is the craziness within? I have not actually dug into the inner craziness, um, although I suspect that the inner craziness is going to come in the form of recycled Freemasonic rumors. The uh, Freemasons in Italy do, in fact, have a fairly uh, important secret directorate that did an awful lot of damage to uh, the Vatican Bank, among other things. Uh, and it was, uh, and they are very much tied into the Christian Democrat Party in Italy, which was the sort of the big, uh, or, or was the big post-war uh, governing party, because the communists obviously couldn't be trusted to run things in a NATO country. So they were variously uh, chiseled out of positions of power by the um, uh, Christian Democrats. And among, I suspect, the secret uh, spines of the Christian Democrats, says Richard Cottrell, will be Operation Gladio, which was the guerrilla stay-behind group that was supposed to hide out in Italy for when the uh, Soviets invaded it, and then would be able to use it to um, uh, uh, use their, their sort of network of agents and arms caches to sort of rise up as insurgents against the invading Soviets. And the argument being that while they were waiting around for the Soviets to invade them, they used their network of contacts and their arms caches to engage in all manner of right-wing terrorism and blackmail and threats and uh, NATO daggering at the heart of Europe and uh, Pentagon Nazi mafia accessing. And it is sort of the tenor of the uh, discussion that I suspect will be the real delight uh, with Richard Cottrell. I, I look at uh, things where the um, uh, NATO banner is hung in suggestive Masonic pattern over a pair of swastika daggers against a bloody sword. It's just a terrific cover. If you could you know, look up the cover on your uh, Google image search, you will see why I couldn't resist. I don't know. Again, for, for all I know, Richard Cottrell might be a, um, uh, a relatively reliable researcher, but I... You, you have some thin margins that I say have otherwise. Some thin margins and some uh, very chunky font uh, choices that, that tell me differently. I did, you've seen enough of these books, you can, you can sort of uh, tell it in the air, just weigh it in your hand and know that there's going to be crazy in there. But Gladio is a real thing, and this sort of book is ideal for a sort of conspiramid uh, within Italy in terms of it's going to have an awful lot of proper names that you're going to want to, um, uh, to, to bring in. And as if, as I suspect, it's tied into the P2 Masonic Lodge stuff, who were, you know, as I'd say, provably tied not just to the Vatican Bank, but also to the Mafia, there's going to be all manner of, of great fun in there even before you start getting to secret Nazis. Right. And for those following along at home, the conspiramid is the way that you organize the layers of enemy conspiracy in Knights Black Agents. Right. Uh, back to the criminal tip, and perhaps people who could also frustrate your Knights Black Agents characters, uh, Tongs, Gangs, and Triads, Chinese Crime Groups in North America by Peter Houston. And it's kind of self-explanatory why you would pick this up, but uh, do you have any other further thoughts on the usefulness of this material? There are other books on triads, and I suspect that there are better books on triads. I have one book on triads already that's pretty good. Um, I looked, I like this one because it went, when you look at one of these standard books, often they begin really in the post-war era and start it up then, or they just cover the 20s and 30s. But this one seems to be a good a broad-spectrum general history of all sorts of Asian gangs, and it also mentions, I believe, gangs that are related to the Chinese diasporas in places like Vietnam and Indonesia that have their own presence in the United States, and I think that that's going to be sort of the interesting thing about that book. I, I just sense that it's got a, a good overview to it, and I look forward to digging into it if I ever need to um, do more stuff involving triads for whatever reason. 
Now, my maple syrup and gorge heart swells with pride to note that you did take away some CanCon craziness. Yes. In the form of the Island of Seven Cities, where the Chinese settled when they discovered North America by Paul Shiasan. And somewhat to my patriotic shame, this is actually published by a major Canadian house, I guess perhaps due to a shortage of homegrown crazy small presses. Uh, but uh, what uh, manner of lunacy does it contain, Ken? Well, my theory is that this is Vintage Canada's response to the book uh, 1431, which became a huge, massive bestseller uh, by um, Gavin Menzies and argued that the uh, Chinese discovered America in 1431 as part of the expeditions of Zheng He. And it, I, f- I forget which of the big six published it, but it was a major publisher and it blew up. It was a massive bestseller. And I suspect Vintage Canada was saying, surely someone in Canada believes that uh, the Chinese discovered Canada and they went searching around and they found Paul Chiasson. And there is a pattern that I call the Arthur in my backyard pattern because I noticed it first with people who wrote about the historical Arthur. And probably 95% of the time when they found the historical Arthur, they found him in their backyard. So if you are a author from South Wales, your Arthur turns out to be from South Wales. If you're an author from Scotland, Arthur is in Scotland. If you're from Ireland, he's Irish. If you're uh, not from the British Isles, maybe he's from Ukraine or France or somewhere else. Well, if you're going to start looking for Arthur, you might as well start in your backyard. Yes. And if you find him there, you might as well stop. Exactly. Because the, 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 the light is better there. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, and you know where all of the Arthur Hills are, whereas other people don't. Uh, but uh, Paul Chiasson uh, grew up on Cape Breton Island. And guess where he found the Island of Seven Cities. But that would be crazy, Ken, because if you're going to settle in North America and you have all this other choice of other bits of North America, Cape Breton is uh, where you settle if you've kind of lost the lottery. Yeah. Or if your only uh, goal is codfish, which I think is why Cape Breton was settled in the first place. It, it is a signal goal, I have to say. <laughs> yes. But uh, the notion that sailors from China um, sail all the way around <laughs> Cape <laughs> they, 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 they get to the, the west coast of North America, and they say, well, San Francisco is the largest, most perfect harbor in the world, and Southern California literally has the best climate in the world, and Seattle is another perfect harbor with huge trees suitable for building more ships. I think we're going to give all those places up, and we're going to keep sailing south through the world's worst oceans until we find inhospitable Cape Breton Island in Canada. Well, when you describe it like that, I can see what the issue is, because surely they were overestimating the West Coast Sasquatch threat. That's right. It was it was the Sasquatch drove them off, or perhaps earlier Chinese settlers. but Or, or perhaps um, uh, Paul Chiasson says that after um, venturing around Africa in 1431, the Chinese sailed north passing the Cape of Good Hope and Brazil and the Caribbean and Chesapeake Bay and then got to Cape Breton Island, which, again, is uh, a little bit uh, ridiculous. But the Island of Seven Cities is an example of Canadian craziness in which Canadian craziness tends to sort of accumulate all the way out at that uh, tippy point uh, in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island. There's another guy named Michael Bradley who has a number of terrific books, one of which I discovered in McGill University's bookstore and the last time I was spent a great deal of time in Canada, uh, which is called Holy Grail Across the Atlantic and is, just as you might think, the theory that the Templars smuggled the Holy Grail and hid it in the Oak Island money pit in Nova Scotia. And oh, that, that sounds like a whole segment. It does sound like a whole segment. But uh, Nova Scotia is now one of the uh, one of the the power words that I look for in CanCon craziness, and seeing Cape Breton Island full of Chinese is just the kind of 
uh, afterburner that that rocket needed. And to zoom out a bit to generalized uh, alternate archaeology in North America, you picked up The Lost Worlds of Ancient America, and that's an anthology edited by Frank Joseph. Yes, there's a magazine called Ancient American, which is the magazine of people who <laughs> who like to believe crazy things about ancient America, basically. It has all of your articles about Roman sil silver mines in Venezuela and your uh, Roman um, uh, colonies in Kentucky and your lost tribes of Israel in Mississippi and your Chinese in Utah and your ancient Celtiberians in Manitoba and whatever else. And it is a terrific, terrific magazine. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I subscribed for a few years before the great austerity shut out... Um, uh, secondary exposure, and and once actually Google made it possible to find craziness with just a mouse click as opposed to having it sent to my house special. Uh, so the, the craziness industry, just like the music industry, uh, hit, hit a big shock with the internet. It, it, it did. But if, if Ancient American is still going, which I certainly hope it is, and anyone's got a couple of nickels to spend, it, it is well worth getting and leaving out on your coffee table to confuse visitors, because it is terrific. And this is, I suspect, a collection of... That, at the very least, contributors to the Ancient American and possibly slightly rehashed articles from the Ancient American. The only problem being that the illustrations are necessarily black and white as opposed to the lovely color illustrations that one got in the Ancient American and on its cover. But there are things uh, such as Odysseus Sailed to America, which is a great title. There's a thing about werewolves in pre-Columbian America, which may in fact include vital information about pre-Columbian werewolves that I did not have already. It has... Um, the standard stuff, like people built balloons to look at the Nazca lines. It has mysterious great walls in Iowa. There's um, uh, Babylonians in Ecuador. There's Atlanteans in Bolivia. Everywhere has been anywhere in, in the magical world of Ancient American magazine. And this is an it's a, it's a terrific sort of um, gallimaufry. It's a it's a bento box. It's a smorgasbord of delightfulness. And now finally, a question that I thought had been asked and answered already, a book called Who Killed Abraham Lincoln by Paul Sirup. And if you remember, uh, when we were standing there in, I think it was... Um, it was She Said Boom, I think. When we were standing there in She Said Boom, uh, and I looked down and I saw that on the shelf and I said, Who Killed Abraham Lincoln? This book seems awfully thick for a book that will just say John Wilkes Booth and then go on. And indeed, Abraham Lincoln was killed by the Pope, or by the Pope's agents, or by the Roman Catholic Church, or by Irishmen. Something involving the Pope is who killed Abraham Lincoln, and there are lots and lots of not just uh, contemporary crazy, but vintage crazy, because of course the 19th century was one of the big bull market centuries for anti-Catholicism in America. It was not quaint then, it was au courant. Exactly, it was, it was cutting edge, um, and, and now to, maybe today's... Uh, uh, hipster conspiracy theorists are artisanally rebuilding anti-Catholic uh, paranoia, but back in those days it was mass culture, baby. And so there's reproduced articles from 19th century newspapers about the threat of the Pope and mysterious Jesuits who were seen sneaking around. The back cover again to this book, as I believe I showed you, is one of those that uh, believes the margins are the work of the Pope and or the Antichrist, and so it pushes them all out, although the font is a um, much snazzier-looking sans-serif font. Um, much nicer than the Gladio book, I have to say. And then there's a, a great deal of uh, details about the um, Catholic background of the actual assassination conspiracy. Booth was apparently Catholic, which I did not know, and Mary Surratt, uh, I did know, was, was Catholic, the, uh, the landlady who sheltered the conspirators at one point during their uh, evil plot. And so there's lots of, lots of good stuff, I'm sure, in the works of Paul Syrup here, um, and suitable for 
I, well, I'm not actually sure what it's suitable for in a gaming thing because it's still a little. Um, it's a little. It's a little prosaic. Yeah, really. Well, hey, it's a little prosaic, and also it's it's a little mean if you've got Catholic players to be you know doing 19th century vintage anti-papal conspiracy theory in your game. But you know you can always uh, say that everywhere uh, Paul Serap says Catholics, he means reptoids and. Uh, sort of reverse David Ike him, and I think that will make everything terrific. And and that just goes to show that if you want to lay down a great base coat of lunacy, start by just reproducing 19th century journalism and go from there. Yes, no, 19th century journalism is a terrific uh, sort of source. I have another book that I got at Powell's in Chicago a while back called The Sun and the Moon, which is all about the New York Sun's uh, hoax stories of winged men who live in the moon. And that is not just a great... Uh, you know, basis for a, a story or a segment there, but it's also sort of another sort of window into 19th century pop culture crazy. This uh, book also, I notice, has Canadian content in that there is a, it is based on the testimony of a Quebecois priest named Charles Chiniqui, who apparently uh, wrote a uh, autobiography or a confession after he became a Protestant that blamed his fellow uh, priests for conspiring to kill Lincoln. So a little CanCon in our Lincoln. Dirty narc. <laughs> you hate it when they blow the gaff like that. Yes. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of your latest bag full of books and the end of this segment. Welcome to Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else. <laughs> this segment, uh, Robin is going to talk to Rob Hainso. First person to pronounce the name in one try today. Right. Uh, so, um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about your shiny uh, newness. So, uh, for the benefit of, quickly, for those who do not know what 13th Age is, Rob, what is 13th Age? Uh, 13th Age is the alternate game to 14... You know, that's just an old joke. I'm going to leave it behind. Uh, on, on the back of our book, uh, which is a, a role-playing game, Jerry um, Jerry of uh, Penny Arcade said, I used to play a lot of 12th Age, but this game really moves it forward. And in that tone, uh, we, 13th Age is my friend Jonathan Tweed and I uh, designing the D20 fantasy game in which we use indie storytelling techniques to be a hell of a lot more cinematic than uh, regular traditional games inside the uh, dungeon crawling framework have been allowing. And uh, we, we, it's the game we want to play together. And Jonathan and I, you know, he was the, uh, oh God, what was that game he designed? Uh, third edition, that's right. And I was the lead designer and the one after him. And it's, it's been very funny because people don't necessarily realize that we played in each other's campaigns all through the development of both third and fourth edition. And so finally, uh, 13th Age, in a certain sense, is us going ahead and continuing the process, but this time purely for ourselves and for fun and as a labor of love, um, rather than for our former corporate overlords. So the, the really fun and interesting thing about 13th Age, from my point of view, is that it combines, uh, you can sort of see the, the the Jonathan in it, and you can see the Rob in it, and you can see those quite explicitly because part of the thing is that you include designer's notes from uh, from 
the two of you sometimes at odds with one another. If, in fact, you could call the two of us sniping at the other one and calling them namby-pamby or rigid <laughs> designer's notes, yes, you are. That is true. My, my favorite one is the opposition where you each uh, say that you initially <laughs> held to a position and you've now flipped the position to agree with the other person so that you're now continuing to disagree, but you've switched sides. Gift and, and, of the magi. Yeah, exactly. And, in fact... In terms of our design process, that is really, in many ways, is how, how it works. Jonathan is, um, he is brilliant, and he is an incredible, incredible argumenter. He, 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 he musters logic and will take you down a path, and I think Socrates would have been, like, right alongside him going, you know, if this, then that. And whereas I'm quite a bit more chaotic and willing to jump around, I'm fallen, the Jungian, the Jungian angle, the result is, is that, one of us may convince the other with one style of logic while the other one is using the other style of logic. And once we sort of get into the logic that we don't naturally possess, we realize the other guy may be right. And so, uh, yeah, we did, we do have quite a few design notes where we, I think part of the, part of 13th age is that it's a looser, carefree game in the sense that we are telling people, look, every single campaign you play, you should be you should be feeling free to define many aspects of the world, many aspects of these things which we set up as supposed pillars of what the game world is like, change them. Change the rule if you need to, but, and instead of, I think a lot of games sort of pay lip service to that, in a way that, okay, the, the game is your own, do whatever you like, but no, we're sort of putting mechanics in that suggest you should do that to really encourage you to do that. Right, and there are certain places where you <laughs> just provide the choice points and say, you could do this, or you could do this, rather than this is the way it is in the, in the Dragon Empire. Um, and the thing that uh, really strikes me about it is that it sort of carries on uh, one aspect of 4E, which is ease of handling. Yeah. So whereas the, there's a big contrast between, for example, the creature stat blocks in 3 versus 4, there's a lot of stuff in a 3 stat block that you never use and uh, is somewhat confusing and which the audience expects you to provide for some essentially ritual reason, I think. I think, in fact, strangely enough, the ritual reasons actually continued in 4E. Bizarrely, the, uh, you know, here's the thing, I'm pretty sure, yeah, the um, 13th Age monsters look a lot more like what I originally thought 4E monsters were going to look like because, hilariously enough, the ritual that was conducted in 3rd edition which is a language, let's face it, 3rd edition is just an amazing language for thinking about simulating fantasy. It's like, and people learned that language and really, really want to use it. Well, 4E was a very different language, but it still made some of those ritual things like, okay, we're going to have, uh, we're going to have skill checks for monsters in this particular way. I think in, in 13th Age, we're trying to do, Jonathan and I, our main, one of our goals as creators was to never waste the reader or the designer's or the player's time. If there's text in the book, there's a reason, hopefully, why someone is going to actually find it amusing <laughs> or interesting. It's like there's no, we're not trying to use filler, you know, or to go ahead and like, well, every other game goes ahead and puts the same number of words about each of the races. No. In fact, we didn't have a whole lot of really, really great things to say about gnomes. We said some fun things that are interesting, but we had more to say about halflings and more to say about elves, and therefore we said it unapologetically. You know, so Elvin, I think, I think that what happens is that consistency sometimes... I also tell, I tell this to Jonathan all the time. I say consistency is the hobgoblin of some very big vines. And 13th Age, we got a, a little bit away from that in order to do the good parts version 
of the game we want to play. Right, and the good parts version, I think, is very much uh, uh, not only a really fun design, but it's a dialogue with the tradition, and the tradition not just of three and four, but of uh, oh, everything yes. that I would call of as the F20 tradition, which would... Uh, How did you come up with the F20? What is the, what is the genesis there? That we need a term for all of the of D&D &D yep. and its various legacies and mm -hmm. different things on the taxonomic tree, and I tried to come up with a bunch of things, and, and 13th Age says... Fantasy D20 rolling uh, 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 games, okay, which it. is a bit of a mouthful. Yes, yes. Um, so I was thinking, oh, you could call it the D&D &D and Descendants, D&D&D, &D &D, but when you right. say that, you sound like a chickadee. Um, <laughs> I, I tried to call it D&D at one point, but ooh, that's not good. No. Um, or you could go 3D, that's taken already. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, triple D uh, introduces an unfortunate yes. uh, innuendo, yes, but then, you know, F20, I think, is a, a term I'm trying to get to catch on. I, and, and you're not, because the great part about it is, like, it's not F and 20. No. Yeah, it's F20. F20. Oh, very good. Sure. I'm sure that will stick. And I'm sure right. we'll all use this term very responsibly. We'll see. All right. Um, but I, I'm currently using it now and through the epic power of this podcast and <laughs> later C-Page XX call. Yeah, right. We'll see if we can get this sketch on. Okay. So, so you're in a dialogue not just with the editions that you worked on, but the whole tradition of this style of game. And you're looking at various components of that style and saying, hey, is this thing that we have always done fun? And one thing I wanted to zero in for the, the rest of our time talking together is just one little part of that, which is traps, mm -hmm. uh, just as an example of your thinking process. And so how would you describe the evolution of traps through the history of oh. F20 and then what you do with it and why did you decide to take that tag? Oh, the evolution of traps. Okay. Um, the adversarial element in original dungeon was that fantasy role-playing came out of a wargaming campaign. And so when Gary Gygax was, I you know, running people through dungeons that had lots and lots of traps and was trying to kill you, uh, the player characters were aware that the story of the, that was actually being told was, this dungeon, Gary is trying to kill us with traps. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's the story here. And that uh, the adversarial part of it was, well, this trap is like a German machine gun nest. It fires this many bullets, and, you know, this is how much damage it does to you. In third edition, there's a very finite set of hit points, and so whenever a player hits a trap, there's an element of, hey man, if you can get the rogue or somebody to dismantle it, you're going to be so much better off, because the finite pool of hit points, at least until players realize that they can create magic items that provide endless amounts of cure-light wounds, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> is... Um, you know, it's supposedly a limitation. Fourth edition had a problem with traps in the sense that traps in combinations with monsters that could also wear you down were interesting because they were sort of a degradation of your abilities or like getting in the way. But if there was no monster to come in and finish the job, let's just say that modern gaming has moved away from the time when somebody's carefully crafted wonderful character that they identify with is going to be killed by a dead ball. Right. Four did something that was really intriguing on paper with traps, which was to treat them as a subtype of monster, basically. Yes. But unfortunately, you know, a trap is a, also a less interesting it's monster. A, it's a less interesting monster. And, it, you know, there were very interesting versions of like, okay, this fires on this edition of count, and this fires on this of count, and we'll make this one a, uh, a multiple skill check to get past. Um, <laughs> I'd say that the traps is one of the elements of 13th Age that is least expanded upon. Because we essentially treated it, we have a cat, we have a call, we have a, uh, a chart in the, in the book that says environmental damage per tier, normal, difficult, 
really extremely tough. And they they come with uh, difficulty checks that like might be what and it, those difficulties are like hey if you're dealing with a problem in a peasant village it's probably going to be about a DC 15 to deal with if you're dealing with a problem in on the other hand the storm giant's castle on the cloud the smallest check is going to be like a DC 25 and if you're not an epic character what are you doing there similarly those charts come with and here's the damage range you can expect from. A, a trap that hits many characters, or B, a trap that hits one character. We're expecting that they get used in dramatic... When it happens and it's not a dramatic situation, it may just be a little bit in the, you know, it's like, oh, you got hit by a trap, well, there are ways to heal, maybe you're going to lose a little bit of your resources, it's not that big a deal. But if the timing is if it, the timing is pressing and if there's reasons that you could be in trouble because of this, then a trap and damage and stuff like that is really could be a really big issue. Yeah, I think you will actually find looking at 13th Age that traps is the least expanded upon part, and partially that's because our understanding of storytelling now is that the story of a trap is actually far less interesting than the story of an eye-to-eye comp no, an eye to eye to eye to eye to eye confrontation with an eight-eyed monster. You know, and so we we handle traps as a pure subset of a type of environmental damage. The type of damage trap does is the same that an incredibly horrible lightning storm might do if you were caught, you know, overnight. And we treat those things as environmental, as sim- similar environmental environmental situations. Right. It seems like in the really early iterations of of D and D that encountering traps was part of the whole highly ritualized process of imagining an environment collectively together where somehow when you were 14 in the late 70s and early 80s, it was just very interesting for a while anyway to just describe the characters going through a darkened section of dungeon and not really encountering anything. And in fact, you will still you will find many early computer games, you know, the whole Zork and the style that are like, I advance a square, does anything explode? You know, or, and that, that that was fascinating to people for such a huge long time. You're right. It, it, it still was here in our face-to-face gaming and it's really hard to, for me, it's hard for me to, to remember that as a way if I ever want to play, but it was there. Right, and part of the ritual was, you know, you would draw another 10 feet of corridor on the with pencil on the graph paper. So is that because gamers have changed? The same gamers are no longer interested in traps and, and envisioning the non-fighty part of the exploration that the same people are playing and they're past it, or are today's 14-year-olds somehow not interested in that and want to cut past the boring part into the chase? Well... When I started in 1974, there was no other game in town. There were no computer games. There was no nothing. The kids of today, you know, if I'm a 14-year-old today, I could be playing a computer game which offers a guild that I can participate in and an amazing world to explore. And so I think the answer is is that when I'm actually going to bother to get face-to-face with my friends around a table, that the graph paper style exploration is a very poor simulation of a sophisticated um, you know, uh, World of Warcraft or um, Guild Wars style experience and that the but the storytelling that you do as a group with your interplay and banter back and forth it is the case that people in a guild can banter you know, and, and play but they aren't, they're not presently able to create the story together they're not presently able to direct things so well, and there have been attempts to do it, but they aren't that satisfying, and it's so much better to be face-to-face with people. Well, Google Hangouts may change that. You know, there's more and more people playing 
online together as well. So my answer is that for kids today coming to it, I don't think you want to be trying to sell them on 10 by 10, you know, squares and graphing. No, but you can sell them on, they have seen so many more examples of fantasy creation than we saw. That when you tell them, and now you're the creator of your fantasy and you're explaining it to your friends, that that's a turn on. They're, they're into that. I have been really amused. I mean, I'm sure other gamers are experiencing Look, no, I'm not sure. I think other gamers are experiencing this also. But I've now had three different people tell me, oh, yeah, I, I got the 13th Age book. My 12-year-old took it. I haven't seen it since. <laughs> and they're running a game with their friends. <clears throat> and I'm like... Part of me is like, what? So really? Did, so does that suggest that the, I mean, w when you're 14 mm -hmm. is when you become the proto-grognard, right? The, your, your brain, as a, especially as a 14-year-old male, I think, uh, your sense of cataloging things and mastering facts and details and stuff, at least for a subset of 14-year-olds, yeah. and maybe they're, uh, you know, so has that mindset now been replaced by... You know, are we having a wave of indie storytelling kids? Is this your thesis? My thesis. <laughs> Sweet Lord. Dear Socrates. <laughs> uh, no, it is not my thesis. It is my current, highly anecdotal, utterly surprised realization that I'm having way more people tell me something that I never expected to hear. You know, when I sent a copy to my, uh, I sent a copy to my, uh, old D&D &D friend when I, who was in college when I was in high school, and he had told me first that, uh, that I might become a game designer. He said, I, you should be a professional game designer when you grow up. You can design games. And I was like, what? I well, could design games a bit farther, professional game designers? <laughs> there were people working at SBI. We were playing, he was playing Air Wars, and was like, you know, you could do this. And I was like, uh, what? And then I sort of remembered that. And, uh, but I sent him a copy, and he said, "Yeah, oh, yeah, my kid is playing in a in a campaign in the ca is Sheldon High School cafeteria of Thirteenth Age." And I was like, "What? How did that kid already get Thirteenth Age?" Because contrary to my dinosaur-like beliefs that a game is real when it's published and in my hands in print, the youth of today are using PDFs at a rate that is just astonishing. So what's really funny is we're sitting here talking about sales numbers and etc. Well, somebody had PDFs, and those kids don't. You know, the adults playing 13th Age actually were pretty, pretty respectful in a certain sense of, I'm not going to give the PDF around to people. I don't think the kids were. So, you know, so the element is like, I think somehow it appears that kids got PDFs really fast and adults had nothing to do with it. Well, I guess we know how that happens. Right. But I'm not, you know, that's okay. That's great. That, that's awesome. Yeah, right? that's awesome. Because when those kids are older and have money, they will, I'm sure, be... Yes. They're likely to do things. So I, I, so Robin, no, it's not my thesis yet. Can you ask me again in a year where I can like find a more evidence for this or something? I, I think though what I'm hearing from people is that these are kids. I've heard that all the kids involved here have been interested in computer games at various times in their life, but that they are really excited about also doing tabletop. I think that the, the distinction between computer gaming and tabletop gaming doesn't exist for them. They're getting together with friends and, hey, you want to play Xbox a little while? Okay, well, now let's play some of this role-playing game and then some more Xbox. And, you know, I think it's not, if the lines are blurring, we have those lines because we didn't actually, you know, it, what, would our, what would my life have been like if I'd been able to grow up actually playing some of these fantasy computer games? It would have been a very different life. And right, it, and if you're playing tabletop, those, the advent of those things was read as a threat. It did read as a threat. I'm, 
my, okay, here is my actual thesis. My actual thesis is that, and, and this is not original at all, but uh, my, actu- my, my thesis is that the culture is now much more a gaming culture without really even realizing it. They, I have friends, um, I have a friend who uh, is, a, is a rock and roll musician who plays in several bands who now masters a guild for a digital iOS game that she just started playing and hasn't been able to stop, and now she's involved in the community of gamers. This woman, if you, you know, a little while ago, it's like, did she like games? Oh, yeah, she played some games. Now she's a guild master in a digital table. Okay, I mean... <laughs> and she loves face-to-face games, yeah, but it's like people are changing their behavior, and some of the... I mean, it's pretty obvious that you know, the social gaming market and people like that, they, we know that there are a certain number of people. Look, social gaming is a lot of them aren't necessarily games in the way we think. But they tell the people playing them that they are games. And when those people encounter what, the kind of games we do, they're not turned off. They're sort of like, oh, hey, interesting. And I think that in the... You know, when people are saying, look, maybe tabletop gaming is doing all right right now, and Euro games, Euro games are obviously doing okay, I, I think that um, the, the, the game industry is actually surprisingly going to find that as the lines blur, it's going to be helped. Yep. So from our discussion of traps, we've concluded that the kids today just might be all right. <laughs> Thanks. For- I, I'm positive the kids today are all right. Well, on that positive note, uh, Rob and I are going to stop uh, talking to each other on a recording device and go talk to each other over uh, some Italian food. So uh, thanks for talking to us uh, today, Rob. That was great. rattle of dice and the shuffling of papers, the crunching of Doritos and the slurping of Mountain Dew seem to echo as though being done in chorus today as we enter the gaming hut. And today in the gaming hut, Robin, you are looking, I believe, for people to help you talk about collaborative world building. Yes, and this segment has come via the prerogative of our lead sponsor for this episode, Jason Petra of Genesis of Legend, whose new game, Spark, includes a collaborative world building element. You can play it in an existing setting. The game supplies several of them, or it gives you a methodology to sit around the table and create your own. And that's one of a number of affinities that it shares uh, with Hillfolk. Another of the affinities is that Jason actually wrote one of the cool historical series pitches. He did Shuriken in Shadows, which is the uh, you play a family of ninjas drama system game. But whereas drama system focuses on emotional interaction Spark is more about political conflict that arises from your beliefs and about engaging with various different factions. And so you might even say that it's sort of, if there's a continuum with a burning wheel on one end, which, you know, squeezes you and tests your beliefs and a drama system on the other, that uh, Spark is somewhere in the, in the middle of those two points. So we want to talk a bit about collaborative world building in general. We've talked about microscope before and the way that you can use that to build a science fiction setting through sort of a multiple choice segment. Uh, What Hillfolk does is it uh, goes most of the way toward creating settings, but then leaves questions open for you to answer as you go along. And the 
challenge, I think, with building a world together is to, first of all, get over that initial hump of the players being stumped for what to do and what to add. And particularly if they come from a more trad background, there may be sort of a reluctance to jump in and start defining things about the world if you're used to thinking of the world as either the GM's purview or maybe even the GM's job. There might are some players who start out kind of from an immersive point of view where they only want to think of things through their character's point of view and don't want to break that in order to start becoming more overtly a, a wider author and explaining things about the world. And I think that once you get past that, as you can with a lot of people's sort of preconceived ideas of having to think only a particular way anytime they sit at the gaming table, you can have a rewarding experience that enables you to tie the world more into the action of what's going on. Because if you're in a game where the setting is completely preset out for you, it's harder to tie that into the action. Whereas, you know, if there's a situation where it would be convenient to have a mountain range and you haven't established that there's a mountain range, you can say, oh, well, there's a mountain range here. And that can become key to the relationship between the environment and what the characters are doing. Yeah, I think that the obviously collaborative world building works even in places where you already have a pre-existing world because you're building aspects about the world that have not been set in stone. So Yeah, there's always going to be some detail that you haven't set out. You can collaboratively world build in a game set in Samurai Japan just by having everyone say, you know, just deciding the aspect of their clan, how it relates to the, you know, the, the shogun or how it relates to the other important clans you know, what its connections are to things that we already know are true about Japan. In the same way that you'd say that in a fantasy world, you know, we assume that there are dwarves. And so saying my character is friends with the dwarves is not a crazy out of the world uh, choice. It's not so much a world building choice as it is a campaign building choice. And I think that a lot of what's called collaborative world building, you know, usually turns into that. Right. I guess the thing that would bridge the gap between that, which is sort of a detail about you and how you relate to the world and full fledged world building, as you would say, dwarves are normally hostile to humans with blonde hair due to their connection of the elves. And everybody knows that. But I happen to be the exception to the rule of uh, blonde men. And therefore, the uh, dwarves have uh, grandfathered me in. And here I have this emblem from the dwarf clan that I once fought with. And so there you're still talking about yourself, but you're also adding information about the world yeah. that uh, hopefully a, a GM obviously is planning to do collaborative world building is going to yes and rather than shut you down. And even if in the GM's notes, it says, you know, there's only uh, seven dwarf clans and dwarves are famous for their affection for humans of all hair colors, the GM would then, you know, quietly adjust what the preconceptions of the world were in favor of what the player has introduced. Yeah. And I should clarify uh, real fast that Microscope is not just for science fiction. It's just what we've been using it for, uh, for the current game. But you can use Microscope for any, literally any setting where you want to build a history. So it would work just as well for second world fantasy. It works uh, for secret histories of the earth. Uh, like we did in Nobilis, it works for science fiction. It's for anything where you want to build a history. Uh, Diaspora has a collaborative world building where you build sort of your science fiction sector and you figure out what all of its big picture science fiction problems are. I think Shock does some of the same thing. And I guess one of the other questions is how much you need to establish from the jump when you're inventing a world or setting together and how much you want to add as you go along because you could theoretically have a collaborative world 
building exercise where the group before they create their characters has total freedom to decide what the world is made up of and what the key elements of their setting are. But then after that, you could lock that off and say that uh, once we're actually playing, uh, we all sort of built this together, but now you can be as immersive as you want because the reality is now set and only the GM can decide that there's a set of mountains over there or what the dwarves' attitude toward humans are. Right. And again, once you've started the sort of policy of creative, of collaborative world building at the beginning, it does seem churlish to suddenly stop that policy. I, I, uh, I believe that, you know, your example of yes and is, is sort of the way to go in any well, ideally in any tabletop environment, but certainly in a tabletop environment where you've once invited collaborative world building to suddenly stop it is is a little deal breaking in much the same way that using collaborative world building to supercharge your player character at the expense of the game or at the expense of the other player characters is also deal breaking. Right. I would recommend doing that only at the on the insistence of most of the players. Yes. That you will get some groups where they're okay, I'm happy to help sort of work out what the world is together with you. But once we actually start the action, I don't want to be authoring things anymore yeah. because that breaks the illusion for me. Yeah. So, so that's like a, a, a big exception. And otherwise I totally agree with you that I think most groups, once they get into being able to add things to the setting, you're unnecessarily denuding yourself of fun tools for player buy-in by then slamming that door shut. Um, and, and a lot of the way that they can help build is stuff that does tie into their character. Like my character went to a secret wizard school or my character was part of the, you know, MI6 specialized anti-vampire training or whatever. And that that can be something that you can say yes and or yes but or something that then generally it only takes, you know, a 30 or 40 degree rotation to slide it into what you meant the campaign to do in the first place if the player is being alert and truly collaborative, which your ideal player will be, both of those things. Right. And I think one thing that you can do to reward people who are invested in collaborative world building is once they introduce something in one context to, as GM, note that away in your mental filing cabinet, or I guess in my case, probably actually in your notes so you don't forget about it, and try and find a way to bring that in again in a new way. So if you're doing a scene where it's like, well, describe your arduous journey across the plains and what each of you does in order to further the group's chance of crossing the plains. So you're essentially just there, you're creating a montage sequence with player input. And let's say one of the players then introduces the gnarled hermit who they charm and then who shows them the way into the place where the good foraging is. And then you're missing a trick if you then don't bring back the hermit in some other context so that, you know, on the way back from exploring the ruins, they find they go back to the hermit's place to reward him and find that he's been, you know, kidnapped and there's tracks leading away into the distance. And so that way it gives the players a sense that their contributions to the world have a resonance to them and will continue to have presence in the storyline and will continue to reverberate down the line. And that then reinforces the fun of having done that so that it's not just a one-time only, uh, you know, I invent this now because I, I was inspired to do so. That way you've got something where the players continue to have ownership of something that uh, goes on over time. That's one of the most important things about collaborative world building. I think it's one of the things that, you know, you can't stress too much that part of the reason to do it and part of the fun of doing it is that the players are not just invested. They're not just co-creators. But they've also got something to look forward to. They've got a positive goal to reach out for or a positive direction to aim the, the play in 
because they've said this thing about the elves hating blonde humans, they now can sort of look forward to the great elf Viking wars and they can make plans based on the fact that they know there's going to be a big elf Viking war com- or dwarf Viking war coming up. And so that there's a, a, a big element in this, in the story that they can plan for or plan around or point themselves at. That's one of the best things to my mind about collaborative role playing in all its aspects. And it, it shows up really, really strongly in a game called Lexicon, which I don't know if you know, uh, Neil Krishna Swami invented it on a, message group or a blog or a group blog or a group message blog uh, back in 2003-ish or thereabouts at the very sort of dawn of indie gaming. Do you do you know Lexicon or have you used it? I, I don't. Well, Lexicon is terrific. Basically, it's a meta game that you play before the campaign starts. And the, the GM and all the players play scholars who are writing a book that is somewhat related to the campaign. So it might be a tour guide to the main continent or it might be a history of, of the campaign uh, world looking back 200 years, whatever it is. When I did my uh, Hero Quest game set in the dueling theater scene of mid-18th century London, the Lexicon book was a edition of Shakespeare and the players were all writing footnotes to it, uh, explaining various concepts. And the bit is that each player, you start out, let's say you're playing the full Lexicon, so you're going A to Z, each player starts and each player writes an entry in that Lexicon beginning with A. So A might be Arthur, comma, King, or it might be Angry Dwarves, or it might be um, Aliborn, or whatever. Just It's some usually a proper name that begins with A. And each entry then has a, a, a sort of a citation or a reference to an entry that hasn't been written yet. So in the Arthur, comma, King entry, there might be a C. Camelot, or C. Mordred, or C. Vortigern, and then someone, by the time the game gets around to Z, has to write the Vortigern entry. The players get to build a bunch of different plot hooks, story elements, weird uh, sort of um, scenes that they'd like to see and write them into the campaign. But because the lexicon is being written deliberately in the mode of argumentative scholars, you you know that it's sort of the, the, the truth might be part or hidden from or closely resemble any of those given entries. And you can play a faster version that's sort of the telephone pad version so your first entry is going to be A, B, or C, and then your next one's going to be D, E, or F, or however you want to do it. Right. So those built-in contradictions give the GM wiggle room mm-hmm. and give the players still a sense of surprise, and they know what the different reality options are on the table, but they're not going to discover what the differences are between what is uh, true and what is false rumor until they actually encounter them, if then. Right. But since the, if a player really wants there to be Excalibur in the game, they make sure that there's an entry under E that says Excalibur, and then they can sort of go looking for Excalibur or say, I want to fight the guy who has Excalibur, or they can do something involving an element that they know because they put it in is in the game. And because it sort of encourages these little bite-sized pieces of setting, it doesn't create a, a, a prison, a, a cage that holds the entire campaign in. What it creates is a bunch of promising-looking breadcrumbs that they can come pick up and get some sort of awesome story juice. And usually it's awesome story juice that they think is awesome because they are the ones who put it in, or they are the ones who said, oh, no, 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 I like what you said about Excalibur, but I'm going to use my entry on uh, Durandal to uh, do do it slightly differently or, or, or however. Right, and if you're using that method or any other method of sort of pre-game collaborative world building, the key for the GM is to remember to pick up on at least one idea that each of the players 
seems to be really excited about because yeah. uh, just as you can during play sort of unconsciously favor the more aggressive more verbal players you also want to make sure that the players who are maybe not so comfortable with the world building exercise still get the fun of seeing their thing brought up in play and it may be if someone you know is a little shyer that they didn't give you quite as much to work with and you have to flesh it out more but make sure that you don't you know favor the guy who has the five scintillating ideas and forget the perhaps more uh, prosaic ideas that were submitted by players who are less comfortable uh, lobbing pitches out into the arena. Yeah, the, 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 certainly Lexicon is is a game that uh, works really well for players who all went to, uh, I think Neil's group may have been at Harvard or one of the um, Northeastern uh, Ivy League schools. And, and my group, of course, were all University of Chicago students. So arguing in footnotes is sort of what they were all brought up to do. <laughs> And and if you if you suspect that your uh, gaming group is is less argumentative in footnotes at least uh, you might want to play keypad where it's only eight uh, go rounds but the uh, but but the basic notion that you're talking about in terms of maintaining sort of player spotlight for any kind of collaborative world building I think is it's the key because what the last thing you want is for someone at the table to think oh now not only the GM is giving me static but all the other players are giving me static well I think we've uh, uh, collaborated on our discussion of world building and can declare. Another podcast completed and stuff talked about. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Genesis of Legend. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this Gollumoffrey going by clicking the donate button at canandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.